All right. Well, praise the Lord. Let's open our Bibles up to Romans chapter 6. Chapter 5. Paul spent a great deal of time explaining the vicarious life that we have through Jesus. And thus we continue to use the term, and he did, uh, in chapter 5, much more. I like that. You know, much more, he said. Along with the terms in Jesus, through Jesus, and by Jesus. Paul emphasizes this over and over again. The one constant that's in Paul's preaching in the book of Romans, and really throughout every book that he's written, is Jesus. Jesus, we call it the centrality of Jesus in theology. Jesus needs to be the center. And to think that he is in all Christendom is not true. Uh, but he is in Paul's writings. And that's why we, we like the Apostle Paul, because he forces us to keep our eyes focused squarely on Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. Paul articulated very well and very carefully the benefits that true born-again believers enjoy vicariously by all that Jesus did. So Paul's argument for the grace of God is that it always, it's always about grace. It's always about Jesus Christ, which is why, uh, his, in his illustrating point, he took us back to the patriarch Abraham. You know, he wanted us to see that it was always about grace. Uh, because we have this mindset sometimes that there's the Old Testament God who's angry, and then there's a New Testament Jesus who's very loving. And then nothing could be further from the truth. He's the same God, you know. And it's always been about grace. So that's why Paul did that. He took us back, showed us Abraham was, you know, he believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. And so Abraham found grace as same as Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's been grace, grace, grace. It's always been about grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. And once again, just to drive it home, Paul used that term much more over and over in chapter 5. So, in emphasizing that grace, Paul touched on one argument in, in, in the previous chapter that some might come to the conclusion, well, if sin has been taken care of, which it was on the cross, past, present, future, done away with, the Bible tells us in Colossians, if that's the case, then sin must not matter. And so Paul is going to deal with that because the Holy Spirit knew. Listen, before we even touch on this, I just want to say this, that if grace is preached properly, if it is preached theologically correct, you will be accused of saying that sin is okay. Why? Because that's what they accused Paul of saying, which he's going to confront. Now, it's not what's being said. But it sounds that way. Any theological person who has studied for any length of time is going to tell you this. They're going to say, look, when you look at the issue and the doctrine of grace and you look at it logically, it sounds that way. Why? Because sin has been dealt with. Jesus took care of it. It was on the cross, took it out of the way. He's no longer holding it against you. God has dealt with it, no longer imputing. He used that term in the last chapter. So Paul, dealing with that, he comes here to Romans 6, and with this in mind, he starts off in verse 1, and he says, what shall we say then? Notice the question mark. It's a question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer there in it? The wrong conclusion some come to in the doctrine of grace is that sin no longer has any impact. Paul says it's not true. It does have impact. Like I said before, it's totally understandable for some to come to the erroneous conclusion. But it just doesn't make sense. And here's what the difference is. Jesus said this in the gospel. He said, you will reap what you sow. On the cross, Jesus Christ took care of the penalty of sin once and for all. We're told that over and over through the scriptures. Paul drives this thing home. It's been done with. It's finished. Totelestai, Jesus said on the cross. It is finished, paid for, done. You don't have to worry about it. But then what effect does sin have in the life of a believer? Well, it can have devastating effect. Now, 
we always want to because we're people and people are like that. We always want to start grading on a scale. Well, what kind of sin are you talking about, Doc? Are you talking about small sins or big sins? Well, I'm not sure there's any difference. And Paul's going to tell you that later on in the book of Romans. See, we like to get great on a scale, but after the cross, it really doesn't matter. Listen, the eternal effect of sin, Paul said the wages of sin is what? Death, right? And to, and, and, and to an unbeliever, that's eternal. You know, there, there's an old saying in theology, if you're born twice, you only die once. But if you're only born once, you will die twice. Because in the book of Revelations, he says, those who are cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death. It says that. So if you're born again, you're born twice, you only die once. But if you're, if you're only born once, you're going to die twice. Okay. So the wages of sin is death. That is those who have never come to Jesus Christ. But the effect of sin in the life of a believer, what is it? Well, it can be devastating. How? Does it have eternal consequences? No. It's been taken care of. It has no eternal consequence to a believer. Now, I'm not talking about a person who habitually wallows in perdition. I think we have to question, if your life does not represent what you say you believe, if your life is a total contradiction, now people say, well, I go to church. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> There's all, so what? Listen, you can sit in the garage all your life and never be a car. You can sit in a movie theater all your life and never be a movie star. And you can go to a McDonald's all your life and never be a hamburger. And you can sit in a pew, unfortunately, all your life and never be born again. <clears throat> Anybody remember J. Vernon McGee? Great old radio preacher. One of, the, one of the great commentators of the Word of God. And I heard him say this one time, and it shocked me as a young believer. It shocked me. And at the time, I thought, oh, that's, that's harsh, man. That's harsh, brother. I'm not sure I agree with that. Now, J. Vernon McGee spoke with a southern accent, so pardon me for making fun of him. I'm not making fun of him, I'm just imitating him because I like him. But he, always, he would always end his broadcast with, and may the Lord richly bless you, my beloved. That was the way he did it. But he said this one time. He says, it's my firm belief, brother, that probably 75% of every person sitting in a pew today ain't going to make it. And I went, 75%? I had to go home and start checking my own self and go, wait a minute, that includes me, you know. But what he meant, because J. Vernon McGee was a great expositor of the scriptures and he absolutely understood the doctrine of grace. What he was saying was that as believers, or people who confess that they believe, often we say we believe, but what we mean is we're trying to achieve something by acknowledging that Jesus is who he said he was. That's why the book of James, who was written by the half-brother of Jesus, he said this, you believe that there's one God. In the Greek, that word belief there means to acknowledge with the mind. You believe there's one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. I always emphasize, I said the devils believe, but they tremble. Some people say they believe and they don't tremble. But it's that assent with the mind that something is true. So you can assent with the mind that something is true and not really have it migrate to your heart. The Bible tells us in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, whosoever believeth, that word believe is entirely different because what that means is to, to trust in, to cling to, to rely upon all that Jesus Christ has done. It doesn't mean that we're never going to sin. It doesn't mean that we're never going to mess up and screw up or whatever Christians do on a regular basis. But our hope, our trust, is not in our doing or what we don't do or do do. It is in what Jesus has done. So we strive to be like the Lord. We want to be like him. You know, He is our example, the Bible tells us, that we should walk in his footsteps. But, oh, I wish I could tell you that I always do. But I don't. I wished I did. And you wished you did. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say that we fail probably on a daily basis. But what's my hope? My hope is Jesus Christ. See, he was perfect. He did do it. He was able to do it. He did it perfectly for us. Therefore, because I'm trusting in him with my heart, not just with my mind. I'm not just assenting that he's who he says he is. And then my life is a total, you know, contradiction to what I say I believe. But in reality... Jesus is in the center of my life, you know, and the Holy Spirit is dictating what we do. So we have the Spirit of Christ. 
when Paul's dealing with this issue, he says, so, what shall we say? Shall we send that grace, you know, so that grace can abound? You know, if I want to experience more grace, should I wallow in perdition? No, he says, no, no, no. Why? Because it'll wreak havoc in your life. Sin after the cross, after you give your life to Christ, Paul's going to tell us it's a choice. See, before we knew the Lord, we were body, soul, and spirit, triune being. And in that order, body, soul, and spirit, that's what we were. Now our spirit was dead, according to the scriptures. And we were driven by our bodily appetites. If it felt good, whatever we do, that whatever my body wanted, that's what we did. But once we were born again, then we became spirit, soul, and body. Why? Because then God had quickened our spirit and we became one with him. And so then we're plus on top of that, we're sealed by the Holy Ghost. So now I'm spirit, soul, and body. Now I'm driven by the spirit. I still have a body. But Paul says, I bring this body into subjection. I don't allow it to rule me like it used to. So it's no longer ruling me. Sin, he's going to tell us, shall have no dominion over you. It doesn't have dominion over you. It did at one time. But after we come to Christ, it does not. But there are those who, when they hear the gospel of grace, they come to this erroneous conclusion. I understand why they come to it. It just isn't correct. And this is what Paul's trying to answer here. So Paul says in verse 2, he says, How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? At one time we were dead, according to Ephesians, we were dead in sin. That is, our spirit was dead. We didn't know the Lord. We were separated from him at that time because we were dead in sin. Once we become Christians, we're dead to it. It no longer has any effect on us. And we no longer desire those particular things. So before we were born again, we followed the deeds of the flesh. That's because we were a triune being, like we talked about just a minute ago, body, soul, and spirit. It's in that order. So sin no longer has any dominion over us, as he's going to tell us in verse 14. Sin is now a choice, but it is a dangerous choice to a child of God. While it has no eternal effect upon the believer, that is, upon your destination, because what's it take to be a believer? You have to believe. It's pretty simple, really. You know, what's it take to go to heaven? You've got to believe. That is trusting in God. That's all it takes, plus nothing. But the effect of sin has a very powerful temporal effect. It will kill everything in your life. I can speak from personal experience. It's just something that you never want to give into, gang. It's like, a, you know, you don't have to taste strychnine to know that it will kill you. You know, and you can drink a little bit of it every day for a long period of time. But sin in the life of a believer can have some devastating effects, enormous temporal effect. Look at verse 3. Know you not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So baptism in the Greek, this is a, um, there is no English word, baptism. You're going, well, wait a minute, Doug, we're reading it. It says baptism. Yeah, I know. There, before this was translated into English, there was no English word. This is what they call a transliteration. From the Greek, baptismal. It means to immerse is what it means. We had no word for that at one time. So what they did was just transliterate. There's a lot of words like that in the Bible, and as we get to them, I'll point them out to you. They're just transliterations. They become part of our English language, but in reality, it really wasn't. So it just means to immerse. And so he says that to be fully immersed, Paul emphasizes in verse 3 that we as believers should realize that we're not only you know, baptized into Jesus Christ, but we're also baptized into his death, he says. And into his resurrection. There's three things there. So we're not just baptized into his death, but we're also baptized into Jesus himself, his death, and his resurrection. Thus, our water baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. There is a more spiritual truth to it than what meets the eyes to most Christians. Now, sometimes, because there's more of a spiritual truth to it, some fellowships, some people within Christendom have put way too much emphasis upon it. And so they make it essential for salvation, which Paul never does. Matter of fact, Paul so strictly did not believe that because in the Corinthian, book of Corinthians, Paul addresses that. And as we get to Corinthians, we're going to, we'll, we'll, we'll cover that. But here's what he said in, in, in Corinthians. They had begun to baptize each other in their own name. And some had began to be followers of each other. And Paul was addressing that. And he said, some of you are saying, I am of Apollos and I am of Paul. 
You know, he says, I am glad that I baptized none of you. He said, lest I should be accused of, being, of baptizing in my own name. He says, now I baptized Gaius, I baptized Crispus. If I baptized any other, I know not. For God sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So Paul the Apostle even separates the two. Is baptism important? I think it is. I think it's the first opportunity for a person of faith who comes to Jesus Christ to show your acceptance and your identifying with the body of Christ in, in the burial and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. So it's important in that manner. But I've had to lead people to Christ who are in a deathbed. And they can't be. Okay? So once again, as Paul talked about the issue of circumcision in, in the previous chapter, remember? He said, if the heathens do by nature the things that are contained in the law, or they're, they're uncircumcised, he says, and they're doing what's right, will not their uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously what? Yes, sure it is. So he's going to do that. So the fact is, is when a person gives their life genuinely to Jesus Christ and they don't have the ability uh, to be uh, baptized, it's not that big of a deal because it's what goes on in the heart that really matters. This is what Paul's emphasizing. But what he's trying to drive home is that it's, it's a spiritual truth. This is something that we need to get, that we have been crucified with him. We have been buried with him. And then we've also been raised in newness of life. Let me illustrate it this way. Maybe this is better. How many people who could wind up being the guest of honor at their own funeral would give anything to be able to rise up from that coffin and live that life completely different? Unfortunately, or fortunately for some, I've been at deathbeds. I've heard people say, I wasted my life. Oh, dear Jesus, if I could just do it over. If I could go back and do it over. And, I, and at those times, I always try to emphasize to them, it's not how you start, man, it's how you finish. You know, it's how you finish. That's what matters. But I understand that feeling. I understand that feeling. I'm sure you do too. You know, some of us more than others. Because some of us have lived lives that are not very pretty. And we get to the end of our life, or maybe we... But, but, but when we come to Christ, see, this is what Paul's talking about. He says, when we're baptized, we're actually baptized into his death. Don't you know that, he said? You've been baptized into his death and in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, what does that mean? It's like going to your own funeral. Except you really do get to get up out of the casket, and you really do get to do it over. It's a do-over. It's a start again. It's a wipe the slate clean, fresh start. So Paul says, some will listen to the gospel of grace and go, man, your sins are taken care of at the cross. Done. Past, present, future. Never have to worry about it again. They're going, woohoo! All right. So why would you want to go back and start all that stupidity again? that got you in trouble, that got you to the point where you felt so rotten, you dropped to your knees and asked Christ in your life in the first place. You get the point? This is what Paul's trying to drive home. Now, granted, it has no eternal effect, but you know the temporal effect that it has in our lives. We all, as Paul's going to say, what profit had you, brethren, in those things whereof you are now ashamed? Because most of us are. We all have those things in our closet. That if, boy, if we could do it over again, we wouldn't have done it. We all have. Definitely before we knew the Lord, and some of us even after. But with Jesus Christ, it's a do-over, man. So think of your baptism as a mock funeral. That's really what it was. You were buried with him. You died with him that day. And then you rose to be a new person, newness of life. Look at verse 5. For if we have been planted together, I like that term, planted. I've heard people use that when you talk about burying somebody. Well, we planted a guy today. It happens. I'm serious. I work for a funeral home. They say it. So planted together in the likeness of his death. Notice he says the word likeness, and that's exactly what it means. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now think about that. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, how was Jesus when he was resurrected? He was glorified, man. Nothing could hold him then. There was a moment in time when God came and took on the, the, the flesh of man, 
became like one of us for 33 years. And for that period of time, Jesus was confined to the space-time continuum. He allowed himself to be. He didn't have to be. He allowed himself to be. I heard a guy talking one time that Jesus, because he was man, he, you know, he couldn't do something. No, don't make that mistake. Peter made that. But Peter says, you know, when he whipped out the sword in the garden, Jesus said, what? Put that away. Don't you know that if I wanted, I could call 10,000 angels to come down and, and, and just clean house? Okay, so don't, don't do this. No, he didn't have to. He, he, he did it because he needed to do it. And he was trying to show us something, and he was also redeeming mankind. So it wasn't that he couldn't. He just didn't because he was always all God, but he was all man. And so very powerful point. We were planted in the, in the likeness of his death. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that, it, that our old man, that's that guy that knew he didn't know Christ is crucified with him. If you're taking notes, underline the word is. That's present tense. That's something that has already happened. Is crucified. I heard a sermon one time by a fellow guy who was one of my colleagues. And I'm listening to this guy, and he's talking about how we need to crucify, you know, like daily, you know. No, we need to die to yourself daily, but there's a vast difference, and I ain't going there tonight because we ain't got time for it. That's a whole other sermon. But to crucify, there's nothing you do to do it other than believe. It's done. We are crucified. If I'm reading this wrong, somebody pointed out to me. Know this, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, and that the body of sin might be destroyed, and henceforth we should not serve sin. The word serve there is important. We don't serve sin anymore. Before we knew Christ, we did. Some people say, well, I wasn't that bad, Doug. I wasn't that bad. Well, you might not have been, according to the world. But what standard are you going by? One of the most interesting verses in the Bible, dealing with the issue of sin, we're yet to get to. It's going to be in verse 14. Because it might change the way that you think. I'm going to give it to you anyway. So you don't even have to read it. We'll read it again when we get there. Paul says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. See, before Christ, breaking the law was sin. But under the institute of grace, in this dispensation, anything that's not a faith is sin. Oh, wow. What do you mean by that? And it's exactly what it means. It means what it says. It says what it means. Anything that's not a faith. You can't earn it. You can't work to keep it. And if you do, what are you doing? If I'm trying to earn the favor of God by being good, by doing something, there's nothing wrong with good works. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But if your intent is to earn the favor of God, which you already have vicariously through Jesus Christ, which he bestows upon it, all of us, even though we don't deserve it, if you're trying to earn that, I want you to consider what you're doing. You are either taking away from something he did on the cross or you're trying to add to it because his sacrifice on that cross was all sufficient, total sufficiency. It is absolutely imperative that we as believers understand that. It will make your life as a Christian a lot easier because he's done it all. And so Jesus was on that cross reconciling the world in himself. He did it. Totalistai, it's finished. It's paid for completely. So as believers, we can never start doing good things, thinking that somehow we're getting on the good side of God. Now listen, under this dispensation of grace, whatever is not of faith is sin, which means even something good that I would do. If I'm not motivated by the proper motivation, it's not good. It's not going to produce anything other than the pat on the back. Here, let me give you an illustration. For the first 10 years, I think, that I pastored Calvary Chapel, we, we just never, we never passed a plate. And I didn't do it for a particular reason, not because I thought it was more spiritual not to. Okay, I, I didn't believe that at all. But I probably just really needed to know in my heart that that church was actually supposed to be there. And I figured if I don't pass a plate and we stay or stick around, it must be God. Well, it was there for 17 years. And now we did go to it. It's a whole other story. I won't go into it tonight, later on. But I heard 
somebody make a mention one time that they, how much they, they were giving and how much they, and I said, first off, don't tell me that as the pastor. I don't want to hear it. And I said, but I hope you enjoyed that blessing you just got. And she goes, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, the fact that you would even tell somebody, that's between you and God. But the fact, I ask yourself, why did I just say that? Why would I tell somebody what I give? Why would I do that? I said, ask yourself. I said, because here's what, if you're doing something to get a pat on the back, to get whatever that, you know, warm fuzzy might be, whether it's from God, that's all you're getting. <laughs> that's it. Enjoy that little bit of blessing, whatever that might have been, because that's all you're going to get. But when we do stuff that we're motivated because of the love of Christ, when we, whatever that thing might be, time, talent, or treasure, it doesn't matter what it is. Well, then the blessings are, then we're able to see it. But God really blesses us anyway. You, you know it and I know it. My life's a living testimony to that, you know. Regardless of whatever we do, God is constantly pouring out his blessing upon us. Why? Because you have put your faith in his son. And God loves the son. And he who has the son hath the father also, First John. And so it's just that simple. So as we're planted together with him in his death, we're also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that the old man is crucified. It's already been put to death. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Hmm. I used to tell people, I said, I've done too many funerals to count. But I've yet to see a dead man do anything. They just don't. Why? Because they're dead. They don't do anything. They don't do no good. They don't do any bad. They do nothing. This is what Paul's trying to get us to see. It's an illustration, but it's a powerful one. He says, reckon the old man. That old man of ours is crucified. He's dead. So if you understand that, then you realize that there's nothing that we can do. Now we just have to walk in newness of life. It really is that simple. So, like this of his death and resurrection. Once again, we experience those two things vicariously through Jesus Christ. Our old man is crucified. There's no process by which we are called to continually crucify ourselves. Paul says that the old man is. That's, that's done deal with Jesus. That the body of sin might be destroyed. In verse 7, Paul brings it into a logical conclusion. He said that he that is dead is freed from sin. Dead men do no sins, my friends. They just don't. Dead men do nothing. They don't say anything bad. They don't say anything good. They're just dead. You know? And so that's the way it is. Now, verse 8, he says, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Because he is always living. And standing at the right hand of the Father. I want you to notice something here. This is the biggest little word you're going to find in the Bible. Is the word if. Okay? If. If we be dead with Christ. Or let me put it to you this way. If we be born again. If you're born again, then you're crucified. You're dead. Whether you realize it or not. Be thankful for it. Because nothing's being counted against you. You're living vicariously through Jesus Christ. The only thing being counted and imputed to you is righteousness. God looks at you as perfect. Now, we look in the mirror and we go, I don't see it. Well, you don't have to see it. It's only important that he does. That's why we just read recently, God calls those things that be not as though they were. And so that's dealing with us. So if we be dead vicariously with Christ through baptism, we also shall live vicariously with him. Some read this as a future event, but that's not what Paul's intent is at all. For he makes it clear in verse 9 through 11. Look at it. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. <clears throat> Pardon me. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died once unto sin, or died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon you, and that word reckon is a very interesting word because it's, a, uh, it's a, um, an accounting term. It means to, to count it that way. So count yourselves dead, he says. Also, to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, notice the through Jesus Christ. Every time you see those through, by, of, Jesus, underline those things. Those are important to note. Because it says, you have nothing to do with it. 
He does. He has everything. Likewise, reckon yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I know I mess up. I know I do, and you know you do, but you know what? I am constantly reminded of all that Jesus Christ has done. And on those days when the enemy's whispering in my ear that I'm a failure, all I got to say is, you know what? That very well may be true, but I have been redeemed by someone who is not. And I am being accounted righteous because of him, because of what he's done. And that's where my faith is at. That's where I'm putting my trust. And that's how you resist the devil. The Bible says resist, resist, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. That's how you resist him. You just remind him of everything that Jesus has done and how that applies to you. And the devil will flee. He'll leave you alone after that. He didn't like hearing about the Lord. So, death has no more dominion over Christ. Jesus lives unto God and therefore was never at any time not that in that case. I mean, Jesus' relationship with the Father and the Spirit have always been in perfect harmony. Jesus did always and still does those things which please the Father. Because we are vicariously living through him, we can say the same thing. I love that. Because the Bible tells us, as he is, so are we in this world. This is what it says. Now, that's a vicarious statement. But I'm good with that. I don't care how, it, how, it, how it's acquired. I only care that it's a fact. And the Bible says that this is true. So... Because of verse 11, reckon yourselves to be dead unto sin. The word reckon, like I told you, is an accounting term. It means to conclude, to reason, to count as. Thus we are to count ourselves as dead to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. The vicarious life of the believer through Jesus Christ is a glorious one in that the battle has already been won. We don't have to fight it. Matter of fact, I want you to turn this time to, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to read you something. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And here's what, it is. here's what Paul said. He said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of who? Christ. Now, once again, these are verses I've heard preached by so many of my friends who what they tried to make it sound like is that every time I have something or I'm battling, I have to bring it down and bring it into captivity. You know, bring, that's not what it says. Paul says, casting down imaginations and every high thing exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. What is the knowledge of God? His revealed word. So anything that comes against what God's revealed word is, he says, hey, bringing it into captivity, every thought to the obedience of Christ. It's Jesus' obedience that we have to bring that thing into. We have to account it that way, reckoning ourselves to be dead, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. We always have to go back to him. It makes life so much easier. Look at verse 12 now. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. Now that's an interesting statement. What's that tell me? This, this statement tells me a few things. But one, it tells me right off, let not sin, therefore, reign. Reign means to lord over, okay? Let not it reign in your mortal body. That's in your flesh. Let it not reign. Which means the opposite could be true, that you can let it reign. You understand what I'm saying? It's very clear. He says, let not it reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. It's not going to. It has no dominion over you. For you are not under law, but you are under grace. You have already obtained that. Because of God's riches of, at Christ's expense, it's already done. He says it will not have dominion over. So to the true born-again believer, that person who has genuinely let the thought of Jesus Christ migrate to their heart, because some people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. And what I mean is it hasn't migrated from here to here yet. But those of us who it has, those of us who are born again, 
we don't have a problem with, with sin being dominant in our life. Why? Because first off, we don't like it. When you're born again, you're going to realize all the stuff that we did in the past, how much damage it done to our lives and how ashamed of it we are. We're not looking for those things. Do we still screw up? Yes, we do. But you don't have a taste for it. You won't like it. You'll look for the first opportunity to get out of it. Guaranteed. You probably know this. I'm preaching to the choir, I'm sure. You know? So we know this, you know? But so just to give you a little thing here, once again, he says not to let sin reign. The word reign means to rule, to exercise kingship over. In verses 12 and 13, Paul's talking about allowing sin to reign in our mortal bodies. That is your physical flesh. He encourages us to yield ourselves unto God rather uh, than unto unrighteousness. Dominion <clears throat> is an interesting term. It means to lord over. In verse 14, Paul states that sin shall have no dominion or shall not dominate you. Before we knew Jesus, we were dominated by sin. You had no power against it. We did by nature those things. You know, that, that whatever it was, we just did it. Why? Because we, were, we didn't know the Lord. So many have come to the false conclusion that they were actually in control. I've had people tell me that. Well, well Doug, I knew what I was doing. I knew what I was doing. No, you didn't. You were just as crazy as the rest of us. You had no capacity. If before you knew Christ... I don't care how much sin you think that you did that you purposely had control over. And believe me, I've actually had people tell me this, that I was in control. You know, I'm to blame. Well, yeah, you're to blame. You're responsible for your decisions. But what was driving your decision? Well, it's that sin nature that was driving your decision. Once again, we sin because we have a sin nature. Sinning doesn't make you a sinner. You sin because you are. So before you knew the Lord, that was the dominating factor. And the fact is, we did it by nature. It just came natural. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, I'm going to read it. You don't have to turn there. He says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I love that verse because those two words there, he says, old things are, present tense, passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And in the Greek, that's just the way it is. It's a present tense thing. I've had people say, well, when I was born again, you know, everybody has a little bit different experience. Well, that's true. But our position in Christ, stepping into that vicarious life, being uh, made perfect, being sanctified, uh, justified, that is an instantaneous, it happens instantaneously. People say, well, yeah, but don't we grow in Christ? Well, sure we do. But that's what we call progressional sanctification. You know, there's positional and there's progressional. The fact is, progressional means that we're growing in the grace and knowledge, and as we're doing even tonight, we're reading the scriptures together, we're coming to a more fuller understanding of what Jesus has done, a more fuller understanding of his grace and what that means for us. So we're growing. But the fact is, we couldn't get any more sanctified than no matter how much more we know. We just understand it, we appreciate it more. But in reality, because it's already done, you can't get no more. You can't get any more holy. You know, you just, it's just the way it is. Verse 15. What then, Paul says, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Once again, that question comes back up. Paul's going, well, now that I said that, I'm going to have to deal with this one. Because somebody's always looking for loopholes. It's only the unregenerated mind of man that reads the glorious news of the grace of God and comes to this conclusion. The unregenerated mind of man always is seeking to stay in sin rather than being delivered from it. Most of us who have found ourselves in that, whether it was before Christ and that's why we came to the Lord or even after you know the Lord and you found yourself in the, in, in the grip of it, we always look for a way out of it because you hate it. You know it's just a torment. It is, you don't want no part of it. 1 Corinthians 2.14, if you take a notes, go back and read it. But the natural man, that's an unregenerated mind receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So it's only these type of people who look at and hear the gospel, and all of a sudden they want to start looking for loopholes in it. How much sin can I do and still be a Christian? I've had people ask me that stuff. I had a kid stand in the middle of a church one time and, and, and give me the longest dissertation on why it was okay to smoke pot. Because, well, the scripture says, Doug, that God's given us every green herb. That's what he said. I, I'm going, look, you know what I told him? I did. I told him, I said, brother, if you're bent on sinning, go do it. 
Just do it. Give yourself, just give yourself to it. And let me know how that works out for you. Because if you're genuinely born again, brother, <laughs> you got a hard lesson coming at you. Because you're not going to like it. You're going to hate it. And, and, you know, that kid, unfortunately, uh, he's no longer around. And he wasn't born again. Uh, his brothers were trying to get him. And, of course, this was the problem. They brought him to church. And that's great. That's great. Okay, bring people to church. But listen to me. A better thing is to take them to the cross first, then bring them to the fellowship, you know. Because so often they come to church and then we, we are so loving, especially this fellowship, man. Because we are. This is a great church. These people are just good and fun to be around. But sometimes I think we can just kind of embrace and love people and maybe they don't hear the gospel. I'm not saying, I'm not, it's, I'm not saying it's absolutely true, but sometimes people can wind up sitting in the back pew and because we accept people, Sometimes they misunderstand that acceptance. Does that make sense to you? Sometimes they take it as though it doesn't really matter whether they give their life to Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that's something that we need to consider. So once again, you know, we want to be friendly, we want to be loving, and, but we want to preach the gospel. And if people don't know Jesus Christ, listen, we don't want to love somebody into hell. You know, and you can do it. You can do it. Listen to me. You can be so loving. And I, if I'm going to be accused of something, I want to be accused of being too gracious. Because Jesus was the one who said, you know, however you meet, that's how it's going to be meted to you. So if, you, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're judgmental, it, it's going to be meted out to you. But at the same time, we want to be honest with people. So, verse 16. We're almost there. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey. His servants you are to whom you obey. The word servant there means slave in the Greek. Whether to sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And, of course, a person who is a slave is somebody who is having it lorded over them. They're, they're being dominated by it. He's talking about an unbeliever. So, but God, be thanked, verse 17, that you were servants of sin. Were, underline it, were. You were, past tense, before you knew the Lord. You were a slave to sin. But you have obeyed, what, the, the Ten Commandments? No, from the heart, that form of doctrine which was delivered you, which Paul's talking about is the grace of Jesus Christ. Being then made free from sin. Do you see that? Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Oh, that's a done deal. Listen, I don't know whether you've ever been privileged enough to have a job that you really didn't feel qualified to do. But people thought you were. And they had great confidence in you. Man, I've had this happen to me so much in my life. I've, I've never felt qualified to do anything. And I'm not trying to sound humble. I'm just being honest. I mean, I ran a laboratory. A high-complexity medical laboratory. For years. I had guys that worked over me and had PhDs. Man, I barely got out of high school. I had guys sitting at my desk. I had this one doctor one time and who eventually gave his life to Christ. His name was Dr. Lee, a little Chinese guy. We hired him, a research chemist, a highly, highly educated man. Was an atheist when he got there. But before he gave his life to the Lord, he went down to the front desk. He heard me speaking because I taught a Bible study every morning. And you had to sit in my Bible study. I paid you. You didn't have to, you know, you, didn't, you could drink coffee. You didn't have to participate, but you had to listen to me teach for an hour. That was just the rule, you know, because most of the guys that were Christians anyway, so we'd have a nice little Bible study from 9 o'clock to 10, then everybody go to work. Well, Dr. Lee would sit up there. After a few months, you know, he, he would get pretty, uh, pretty upset because <laughs> he just had no answer for some of the stuff. And then one time he even told me, he goes, you know, he says, of course, in very broken English, he said, uh, you know, you, you say a lot of things. He said, if, I, if you were a preacher, which was funny because I was, he goes, if you, if you were a preacher, I'd come and listen to you. And I said, well, it's funny you say that because, <laughs> you know, and I told him. But one thing happened to him one day. He, uh, he made the mistake of asking, because <laughs> we'd been talking about physics and some of this other stuff, and he made a mistake of asking somebody where I did my graduate study at. <laughs> and they said, well, did you ask Doug? And he says, no. He said, well, when Doug comes back, you might want to ask him that. And... Uh, so I was sitting up in my office, in the big office, 
which was my office. <laughs> I just say that because I'm, I'm going to get to the point. I'm sitting up there, minding my own business. I get a knock on the door. I look up, it's Dr. Lee. I said, yeah, Dr. Lee, come on in. He comes in and sits down. He says, uh, in very broken English, he says, a dog, uh, where did you do your graduate study? <laughs> and I said, graduate study? I said, you mean, uh, that's like after college, right? He went, yeah. I said, oh, that might be a problem. <laughs> he goes, well, what do you mean? I said, I, I, I went to college about that long, uh, I think two semesters, and I quit. He went, that, that ain't possible. I said, oh, I'm pretty sure that's possible. He's going, no, that ain't possible. I said, no, I'm, yep, I'm pretty sure. Uh, no, I forget. That, yeah, it's a fact I didn't graduate. Literally, this man started to cry. And I'm not saying it to belittle him. He cried. I mean, he... And at first, I was a little shocked by that. You know, I'm talking crocodile tears, man, you know, with his head in his hand. I said, Dr. Lee, what do you do? Are you that prideful, my man? Does it bother you? <laughs> what bothers you is I'm the one signing your check. That's what's bothering you. And you've got an education that's so far above me, I can't even understand half of the words that you use, and not just because you're Chinese. <laughs> I'm being honest, you know. It was later on that Dr. Lee finally, through a miracle, and we ain't got time tonight, but it was very powerful, and Dr. Lee finally gave his life to Jesus Christ. And then all that fell by the wayside. But I've been very privileged. God has been so good to me that he's allowed me, even though I never felt qualified. You know, how did I wait? Man, uh, I've been told several times, if I want to write a book, I need to write a book just on that. You know, and, um, But God will do that for anybody. You know, the Lord will use you. I just never had anybody ever tell me I couldn't do something. I really didn't. I, I didn't look at anything as being an obstacle, and I just kind of figured, well, if the Lord wants me to do it, I'll do it, you know? And he allows me to, you know? So, and I would encourage you to be the same way. Don't, so often we look at things and we, we think those are obstacles, you know? Well, I don't have, I've actually had people tell me the reason they don't go into the ministry, even though they have a heart for it, is because they don't have an education. I start laughing. I said, you don't need an education to lead somebody to Jesus, man. Just talk to them about the Lord. Start reading the Word of God. You know, just start doing it. So anyway, let's finish this thing up. So Paul goes on here. He says, so not yielding ourselves to be instruments of sin, but unto righteousness. So it, it, it's, a, it's an act is what I'm trying to get you to see. He says, you know, yield yourselves. You know, don't do it. Don't yield yourselves to sin. This is a purposeful thing that we can do. It's a choice, in other words, is what Paul's saying. So if we obey something, we become a slave to it. He says, be a, if you're going to be a slave, be a slave to righteousness. It's just like in works. He says, if you're going to work, strive to enter into the rest. You know, if you're going to work, work to, work, work to rest, he says. Don't do it the other way around. So servants here means slaves. So we don't want to be doing it. If we're going to be a servant, let's be a servant to righteousness. Verse 19, for I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and, and to iniquity unto iniquity, before you knew the Lord, is what he's talking about, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. True holiness is what he's talking about. For when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. So verse 19, you know, Paul knew that the things that he was saying could be misconstrued. He knew that, both positively and negatively. So... As much as he could, Paul tries to make the doctrine as simple as possible because of the infirmity of their flesh and of ours. So Paul says, as we have yielded our members as slaves to uncleanness and iniquity before you knew and believed in Christ, even so now, as true born-again believers, he says, yield yourselves as slaves to righteousness and unto true holiness. Because that's really what it is. Paul drives this point home in verse 20 when he says, For when you were the servants of sin, before you knew the Lord, you were free from righteousness. So when you were. So now that you believed, you're no longer that way. So he just like he tells them in the book of Ephesians, he says, walk worthy. It really is that. It, you're already there. You know, God's already blessed you. He's poured out so much on you. And yet all we have to do is walk worthy of that. And just honor, gratitude, those type of things. What fruit had you, he says in verse 21, in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin, and you are in Jesus Christ, you're free from it, and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. 
That's a done deal, man. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word wages here, and we're going to close with this. The word wages in the Greek literally means rations for a soldier. It is his stipend is what it means. It's a stipend, and it's a stipend paid for work that is done. That's, don't you think it's interesting? The wages of sin, the payment made for the work that you did is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Once again, Paul's going to tell us in chapter 14 that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. We got to get this mindset. Listen, it's old covenant, new covenant. We're under the new covenant. Okay, the fact is, it's not just breaking the law that is a sin. Now it's whatever takes away from the cross. Now, whatever, if we try to add to take away, we want to rest solely in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Everything that he did, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the fact that he stands at the right hand of the father continually for us. We want to rest in that because that's where our hope lies is in him because he is so are we in this present world if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Sin has no dominion over you. We all make mistakes. We all screw up. But you know what? It is new every morning, as the song says. New every morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we do thank you. Father, we are so thankful that we have a right standing with you, Lord, because of all that Jesus has done. Because of your righteousness, Lord, because of your faithfulness, because of your being true, even when we are not. I was so blessed this morning to hear the captain, Lord Father, say that even though he had turned his back on you, when he was in the heat of battle, Lord Father, you stayed faithful to him. And he came back to you, Lord Father, because of your goodness, which is what your word has always said. It is the goodness of the Lord that leadeth thee to repentance. God, we are so thankful for your goodness and your mercy and grace. Father, help us to communicate it simply. Help us to lead others to live their life, Lord Father, to have a victorious life as a Christian in you. Not to wallow in guilt, because, Father, there is nothing but torment in that. But in Jesus, Lord Father, there is joy and there is life eternal. We love you so much and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.